1: founder and chief explorer at Wayfinders. Mike helps people better organize their processes within their business in order to basically maximize and greater efficiency. And I brought him on the podcast today to talk about this as a general practice management conversation. And with that, here's of you with Mike. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Good to be here. So Mike Brissick, tell us about what it is you do.
2: Yeah, uh, there's a number of things that I do. So my, my company, Wayfinders, I, take, I host entrepreneurs on these events in spe- spectacular places around the world. Places like uh, Greenland and the Amazon and Rwanda, and that's all under. While these are amazing adventures and lots of fun, it is really under the guise of creating an amazing community of people who are all exploring what it means to be a successful entrepreneur beyond just this narrow definition of you know financial success or growing our companies. So we're exploring questions of how to have a meaningful life, how to have, a, have an aligned life, so that your company fits into that vision, stuff like that. Part of that is exploring how we how we can run companies and not not have our companies run us and so living a better life that way and so i also do consulting with a handful of people just about helping them put in systems and processes in their business so that it can run smoothly without them that's you know that's the ultimate goal is the company completely run can completely run without you and then you have the freedom to work or work where you feel most aligned and have the most joy so that's it in a nutshell i do a bunch of other stuff as well but that's the relevant stuff Excellent. So tell me about how you got started doing this. So I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years. My previous company that I sold in February of 2019 did uh, high-end mountain bike trips all over the world. We were in about 45 different countries, very big, complex business. 2017, I launched Wayfinder. So kind of as I was making my way out of the other company, I was starting up this other company. And uh, I attended a number of entrepreneur conferences and had been attending a number of entrepreneur conferences and they all kind of follow the same format, you know, two or three days you go to a hotel or you're in a conference venue and there's speakers on stage and there's workshops and um, it was great. I got a lot of value from them, but really the primary value I got was from the, the connections I made with other entrepreneurs and being able to share journeys and learn from each other. And the format really wasn't set up for that. So I decided, Hey, I've been in the adventure industry for, you know, 20 plus years at that point. And I knew that if you take people outdoors and you're doing fun, challenging things together, that tends to bring people together quickly. So I thought, well, maybe I can take this conference idea and mesh it with this outdoor adventure stuff. And uh, that was sort of the genesis of it. And it's, it's taken on a bit of a different direction where I go to these pretty remote places around the world. My last event was November in Bhutan. We, I incorporate a lot of local culture. Into it, So we spent quite a lot of time in these remote monasteries, hanging out with some pretty badass monks and learning about Buddhism and learning about the Bhutanese approach to life. And, uh, you know, that's all in the service of exposing people to different ways of thinking about life and ultimately answering the question of what makes a meaningful life. So that's how I got my start and that's how it's and it's uh, it's taken out very nicely. And, you know, right, right from the get go, I, I, I sold out my first event and I've sold out every single event since. And I've approached it very differently than my last business, which was just about scaling all over the world. This, I keep this company intentionally small and nimble and it earns me a great living and I don't have to work very hard at it. So it's a
1: different approach to entrepreneurship. I've never heard the term badass monks before, so that's, uh, that's kind of cool.
2: Well, uh, if I can go a little deeper into that, just telling you how badass they are. So when you want to train to become a monk, you go to sort of this monk university type of thing for two years, and you learn about Buddhism, you learn about monk practices. And then if you want to further your practice, you go basically into isolation where you're completely on your own and you're meditating and food is brought to you, but you don't have interaction with those people. And uh, the first stage is three years. So they go into isolation for three years where they're basically just eating and sleeping and meditating. And then if you want to take it another level, you do another six years. And then if you want to take it to the ultimate level, it's another nine years, so 18 years in total. And I met a lot of these monks and um, you think somebody spends 18 years in isolation, they must be completely bonkers, but they were some of the most amazing, compassionate, loving, glowing human beings I'd ever met. So it's a little aside there about badass monk's. I
1: do find it uh, interesting that they do three years of that, and then they opt to go back in and keep doing it. So you have to have it through all. So all right. So let's talk about you know when when it comes down to it, you go into you know basically help entrepreneurs. What does that process look like, and what it is you bring to the table? So you know with my consulting work, when somebody comes to me, it's
2: typically they are oh totally overwhelmed. They're working way too much. They're stressed out their company is more or less taken over their life. And that's, that's where I was at with, with my previous company. And, you know, the genesis of this work is that I hit the breaking point where I'd been, I had my foot on the gas for many years and I was just really pushing growth and scale with my company and I uh, decided to get off. And, and I spent about six, seven months really putting in a lot of systems and processes so it could run without me. And um, by the end of it, I was down to two and a half hours of meetings on Tuesday. And that lasted for about a year until I decided to sell the company. And so, you know, the work that I do is implementing a lot of these things, which I've pulled from different sources and some of them I've modified. I'm a big fan of simplicity. So I simplify a lot of tools and I've developed some of my own. It's really, there's a lot to it, lots of different pieces. You know, some of it is setting the foundation where, you know, we work on setting a very, very clear vision for where people want to take the company so that if your staff don't know what your vision is for the company, they're just going to kind of make it up and often they're going to be coming to you for guidance all the time. Whereas if you set a very clear vision and some, you know, clear guiding principles that does a lot of your work for you because people know this is where we're going and this is the lens that I should be looking at this through. But then there's very specific things. You know, there's a huge financial piece to the work that I do is like really most people that I work with, they're in the same boat that I was in where, where they're pushing growth and maybe their revenue is climbing, but often as they're growing, their expenses are climbing even even faster and they're Mm -hmm. growing themselves out of business. And then they have to take on more debt. They have to raise money, you know, whatever. It's a bit of a hamster wheel. So part of it's just looking at the, at the business model and diving deep into the financials and understanding often most businesses, especially if they're growing quickly, you're not spending a lot of time looking at the P and L statements. So it's uh, going through that with a fine tooth comb, looking at the balance statement, developing cash flow projections, stuff like that. Most businesses are a little bit bloated and some of them are very bloated and they have way too many expenses. If I look back at my previous company, once I started really diving into our P&L statement, it was like all, the, all these line items, like our software, you know, we were, I don't know, think, I think we were spending like 50,000 a year in software. I'm like, what the heck? What, what, is, what is that? Like? And I started digging into it line by line and then asking people, hey, are you using this piece of software? And it's like, we signed up for a subscription three years ago and nobody's even using it anymore. And uh, I spent a few hours on that process and ended up cutting over $10,000 off our annual just on software. Just on software cool. expenses. And yeah, the bigger uh, so company one example.
1: Bigger, yeah, I mean, the bigger the company bloats, the more likely you are to find those things. I mean, we I like to say, you know, we do a, probably every two years, we do a kind of like pulse check on all the different categories. Because, I mean, everything gets lumped up into one thing. You just don't see the breakdown, right? And when you do, yeah, the number of times that either it's, oh, you added all these cell phones to it and no one went to back to the carrier and renegotiated the cell phone plan now that you have 50 phones as opposed to 10, right? Like. There's just so many. You know, unless you have someone basically looking for those efficiencies constantly, which unless you're, you have know, the scale to afford someone just to do that, you're not going to have it. You're just not going to have it. So, and you know, as for your, your comment on um, on efficiencies of scale, like the reality is, yeah, I think you and I, this was a previous conversation with um, with Chad Davis of CA is that as you grow in scale you have to reinvent the company over and over and over again because systems mm-hmm. will just break because what worked for five people is not going to work for 15 people. What worked for 15 people is not going to work for 50 people. work worked for 50 people sure as heck not going to work for 100. So yeah, if you're just focused on on the top line, you're just the amount of bloat you're, and problems you're going to create for yourself and you're just going to work harder and harder to get the revenue number, the, the profit number higher when you already had the profit. You were, you were just blowing.
2: Yeah. And you know a number of the, the companies that I've worked with, their revenue is great and either their margins are, are terrible, or their operating expenses are too high to support their you know their gross margin, and, um, and we have to address both those things and a lot of people just think oh i can just grow my if they're not profitable or they have cash flow problems they're like okay well we just need to you know we just need to do another marketing push another sales push and bring on more customers but if the if the business model is broken throwing more gasoline onto a dumpster fire is not going to put out the fire right and yeah. so
1: you can't do better on a rental building by adding another floor if your foundations already cracked it's just not going to work yeah. yeah exactly so Basically, you go in and dive in. So tell me about like you're, so you talking about the financial aspects and basically going in and taking a deep dive on those and making sure they understand what's going on there, looking at margins. What else do you do in terms of like the process management? Tell me how how you kind of help them reengineer the company altogether?
2: Yeah, so a few of the sort of big things that I see, one owners, the owners, owner or owners or founders, they spend a lot of time putting out fires. So that, that's a big one. Generally, you know, people expect if there's an issue, they expect the owner, you know, they delegate it up to the owner and they expect them to deal with it right away. That, that's a big one. Um, and, you know, I have a system for that. They don't have good meeting rhythms. So it's just like, okay, we need to talk about something. Let's set a meeting. I help them in, in implement really good, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly meeting rhythms process. So operating procedures. If a company is growing fast and they're bringing on people, there's there's all kinds of new procedures happening all the time and very rarely does it ever get documented. And mm-hmm. so I help them implement playbooks. And also, you know, a big part of it is helping the owners dump, you know, what is it that they do on a regular basis and dumping that into playbooks, because that's, you know, sort of the first step in being able to delegate or outsource, something like that. Putting in really good systems for execution so that, you know, when you do have a vision, this is our three-year vision, one year vision, whatever, you can crunch that down to the quarter and then you know you crunch that down into a weekly or bi-weekly sprint so that everybody knows what they're focusing on at any given time. So those are a few of the big ones. And then for the owners specifically, I we start by doing time audit. So you know, over the course of a week or sometimes two weeks, if their weeks change a lot, it's just auditing like what is it that I do on a regular basis? What are some of the recurring things that I keep doing? And then we make a we make a big list of all of those things. And then for each of those things, we classify it. Is this something that I'm really good at and it energizes me and that it drives a lot of value to the company? Or is it something that I'm not very good at or it really drains my energy. And so we go through that list, classify all that stuff, and then we start we start with the stuff that I tend to start with the stuff that people, that drains people's energy. So everybody does this in a company to some extent. They're just doing it because it's how they've always done it. They don't know, they feel scared to offload it for whatever reason. For me, in my previous company for many, many years, I did all of the financial stuff. Once a year I'd prepare everything for the mm-hmm. accountant and then, and then he would prepare it for tax returns. And then I brought on a bookkeeper and the bookkeeper did a bunch of stuff, but I was still, I was still dealing with suppliers. I was paying invoices, all, all that kind of stuff. I hated doing it, particularly when we were in a cash crunch and I had to delay payments to my suppliers mm-hmm. and they would be angry at me or whatever and it just killed me, it just sucked all my energy. Mm-hmm. And once I, once I started writing out playbooks, and in the initial stages, before we actually fixed our business model and became profitable again, part of that playbook was like writing out what is the, what is the decision tree that I use to figure out when and how to pay suppliers when we're running low on cash. Mm-hmm. And so all of that stuff got offloaded to my bookkeeper. And being able to get that off my plate and not have to deal with that was such a huge energy boost because every time I had to deal with that stuff, it just sucked my energy. It made me really ineffective. And so
1: that's a big thing that I do with. Uh, so, what I love about what you talked about there in particular. And it's endemic, especially in my industry. It's the old, um, you know, I need to hire an assistant to do all the stuff I hate. So there is a semblance of truth to that. And there's a semblance of of a mistake, right? If you take a really crappy job with not structure and without, without kind of that playbook, at mentality you've taken and pass over that really crappy job to someone else, don't get me wrong. There's some people who prefer, who, who are perfectly content doing administrative work. That's fine. But if you do this inefficient, crappy in the butt job and just say, I'm not going to handle this. You handle this and give them some cursory direction. You haven't solved the problem. You just shifted the exactly. problem to someone else, right? What you've done is you're using, you know, basically design thinking and, and you know, almost engineering thinking to basically say, Hey, you no, know, you know what? I've been running this in my head for my sake and for the sake of the company, I'm going to standardize the process of decision-making for this. And either a whiteboard, a piece of paper, or any one of the flowchart softwares out there can help you with this and say, okay, if this, then that, these are the situations, this is how this is going to work, hand it off. And now you created a low stress system for the other person. And even if you can't, you can't yeah. hire someone else. You created a low stress cognitive burden reduction for yourself. And one of, the, one of the resources I'll point people to on this, I'm sure you're familiar with it, is the Checklist Manifesto. I can't remember who the author is, but it's a well-known book that talks about the power of highly effective checklists. And it sounds like a little bit ridiculous, like, again. Yeah, I'm going to make all these checklists, but the reality is, is that if you take the time to actually think through a process and develop a strong checklist then you basically when the time comes to do these these things that are that are coming up and repetitive but you don't like doing them or they happen seldomly, you will do it efficiently without any reduces your cognitive burden. You'll do it right. You'll do it efficiently. You'll do the first time to do it faster. And there's even, I'm going to plug one more thing. There's another software, there's a software out there called Process Tree that helps you develop these processes and these checklists uh, and they can stay static or if there's any way you can automate part of it, it will help you automate it. So anyway, that's my little plug there. But I love what you're saying there because very much how I view the universe is that without a properly defined process that cuts to the heart of what you're trying to do, you're just passing crap on other people. Yeah, exactly.
2: And so, you know, our touching on on tying into that, our playbook. I mean, it was pretty simple. So, an individual playbook for whatever process we would write that out in a Google Doc, and it's step one, step two, step three, and then at the end there would be a check. There would be a checklist, just like you said. And uh, those checklists were so valuable. And I'll give you one specific example. So, when we would launch a new trip my previous company, it would get entered into our booking system, all the details, the pricing, you know, what questions the customer has to blah blah blah. And there's a lot of different moving parts to that. But there's one part that's really crucial, which is the tax, selecting the appropriate tax for that trip. And for trips that we ran out of the country, we didn't have to charge tax. For trips that we ran in Canada, we had to charge the company was based in BC. So we had to charge 12%. And so if you're looking at a four or five thousand dollar, and this happened to us a yeah. couple of times, a four or five thousand dollar trip and Somebody forgets to check off that tax uh, button. That customer doesn't pay tax on that trip, but we still have to give the government tax for that. Trip. Yep. We can't really go back to the customer and say, "Actually, you owe us another five hundred dollars for the taxes." Yeah. They're going to be like, "What?" So you got to work make- it
1: backwards and be like, "They paid me X, and therefore." If I had charged yeah. tax, there would have been why. And yeah, I've, I've been there and it's it's painful. So you look at that, like you have a trip
2: with three departures a year and 10 people on it. And each of those customers should have paid $500 in tax. That's $15,000. Mm. And that happened to us where somebody forgot to check that that checkbox. We never charged tax. And then we were on the hook for $15,000 that we should have. So just like, you know, having a process where it's like, okay, here are the steps and here that before you're done, here are the checkboxes that you have to check and uh that's massive and then we had a a google sheet that was a table of contents of all you know marketing processes sales customer service everything that went in there that it took us probably three months i made it a goal to get two two playbooks written every week the stuff that Mm -hmm. i do and i told my staff write at least one playbook a week but by the time it was done we documented you know almost every single process that happened in the company and then when someone goes on vacation they need somebody to cover for them they just say Hey, it's all in the you know it's all in the playbooks. They're right there, so that's huge, and it cuts down, as you said, cuts down on a lot of stress, and and ensures that things get done right. And when you delegate, you're not just delegating a mess.
1: And what I liked about what you did there was you held you you had the staff also help carry the burden. And I take it you probably all reviewed these all as a as a group. So you had this joint expectation of delivery, right? Too often I see the business owners like, okay, I'm going to develop this stuff, and then they get distracted by everything else. There's no accountability mechanism on there. They don't know that they have to also you know their staff is working on something and they have to deliver because they don't want to look like like they're the lazy one you know creating that accountability mechanism like you did was one of the reasons why it was highly successful i would say Mm -hmm. so i I take it you're the accountability coach in these coaching sessions that basically well that's a big part of why people hire me is the accountability
2: and um you know i was working with a group out of texas yesterday or maybe it was a couple days ago and um they for the vision part of it, my um, reference is that my friend Cameron Harold wrote a book called Vivid Vision. And it's just a fairly simple concept, like write, be very descriptive of what your vision for the company is. Talk about, you know, what do your customers look like? Where are you operating? You know, all that kind of stuff. And so one of the guys who's in this group that I was working with, he said, well, you know, I, I read Cameron's book. And it's been, my, it's been on my mind to write down my vivid vision for the last two years. But I've just never gotten around to it now that, you know, I'm working with you. I finally got it done, and so that you know, part of it is just accountability. I'm not bringing anything particularly magical. I just bring all this stuff together, present it to them as a system, and then say, "This is what we're going to do now. This is what we're going to do two weeks from now. Get it done." And then most of the time, they 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 get it done. Otherwise, they feel bad showing up, saying, "I didn't do my homework."
1: Yeah, I mean, there's entire industries built around the concept of accountability, and everything from personal training to uh, even financial planning. I would say basically mm-hmm. the accountability of having someone else to a- answer to, and either deliver or make an excuse, and continuously make an excuse. You know, no one, no yeah. one feels feels good about, oh, this is the sixth meeting we've had, and every time I fail to deliver, and I always have this list of excuses. Right? No one wants to be that person. Exactly. So tell me about how long like your engagements with these companies typically last. You know, you go in there, you help them fix what's wrong with them, and you know, you eventually say, okay, you're you're taken care of. At what point do they say we've got this or thank you so much, but you know, we're we're good to go. Or you say you've done it, you're you're through. So moving on. How long does that mm-hmm. typically experience typically last?
2: Well, I work with companies, either a six month engagement or or a full year engagement. And we meet every two weeks for 90 minutes. And I mean, ultimately, obviously, it's, it comes down to, partially comes down to their budget and how motivated they are to get this stuff done. It also depends on where they're at and whether they have any of this stuff implemented. And I've worked with companies that are just, they're just flying by the seat of their pants every single day. And there's no, there's barely any structure in the company at all. They don't even have, you know, regular meetings. It's just meeting whenever they can. And And then i work with companies that, that have some, you know, semblance of structure implemented, but they're missing a few key pieces. And so part of it too, is if they're overwhelmed, which is why they're coming to me, they only have so much capacity to do some of this stuff on top of their regular workload, right? So I operate on the assumption that they may only have an hour a week or maybe two hours a week to work on this stuff. So it's a patient process and I'm kind of meet people where they're at and, you know, everybody I've worked with, if we're working together for six months, by the end of that process they've massively cut down their workload. And like I said, my goal is to get them down to a few hours of meetings every week with, the, with their key team. And you know, a typical, typical customer, typical person that I work with is five to 20 staff, it's, um, hmm. where they've, so they've kind the of grown. Yep. They've kind of grown. I've worked with larger companies, but they've, they've kind of grown out of that you know, solopreneur, me and one other person type thing, where they have a team, and, but they've, you know, maybe they've grown quickly and they haven't really implemented anything along the way. And, and now this company with 15, 20 people, it's growing quickly, but it might be a little bit of a mess, so to speak. So you know, my, my goal, like I said, is to get them down to a few hours of meetings and have the right people in, in place to run the company and have a good system for running the company. And then the owner or owners, you know, they can choose to have a lot of free time or they can choose to spend their time in the company where you know, they really love the work that they're doing or they're driving a lot of value. For the company or ideally both right
1: so okay excellent so i take it the end result is nothing but raving reviews i mean frankly i can't imagine going through a six month process with you without seeing and actually living up to without seeing substantial improvement i'm curious as to what the feedback is beyond this is great like what are they telling you uh you've helped them accomplish in the time
2: yeah well the you know the start of the process is they fill they fill out a detailed intake form and uh one of the questions is i want you I want you to dream a little and what is success?" From us working together, look like beyond your wildest dreams? And then I asked them on a deeper level, why is that important? So, to give you an example, one of the guys that I'm working with is success beyond his wildest dreams is that he can take off a full year and go RVing with his wife and kids for a full year. And he's had this dream that he wants to buy an RV and just go explore America for a year with his family and um, right now his company is really anchoring him down and so he he can't and you know he's not gonna be able to just fully step away from his company for an entire year without you know without a single phone call or anything yeah and I told him that's not realistic but we can definitely get you to the point where you've got a team running the show and you check in once a week and do a few hours of meetings and calls and stuff like that so that's you know and he's super motivated and inspired by that and that's sort of the the outcome that he's looking for and it's not it's not just about stepping out of his company. It's about why do you want to do that? Most of the people I work with, they don't want to just sit in the hammock for 60 hours a week and do do nothing. They still want to be meaningfully engaged with the world and they want to be engaged with their company. So for some people, it's um, success is that they most of the time that they're spending at work is, is doing work that they love and that they feel really energized by. And most of the people I work with, you know, they started a company because they love whatever it is they were doing, but, as the company's grown they've gotten away from doing the thing that they love doing or for some people it's like this guy his dream is to be in an RV so he wants to work as little as possible so varying things but it all it ultimately comes down to some emotional reason behind behind it not just some you know logistical or practical reason
1: yeah and uh, i mean this is a subject near and dear to my heart i uh, i've had str- I, you know i've done various processes management exercises. And I'd say that you know, I'm in need of a bit of an overhaul given the scale we reached, I reached that inflection point yet again. But the reason I'm getting to this is because I oftentimes get questions like, how are you involved in so many things? Like, how do you basically podcast, run your business, like do this technology stuff at the same time and, you know, eventually teach on occasion all this other stuff. And it's like, what you got to realize is that if you can properly right size the work you're doing in your business and delegate, the work that is basically of not the, again, the stuff you love or the core value of the business stuff that's mission critical that you want to hold on to, it frees up time. And so many people think that that concept of time is like, okay, great, I don't want to work. But the reality is, is that no, it's just more time to do the things you're passionate about, right? And yeah. it's like, even when we talk to people about retirement and you know, when people start getting within five years of retirement, especially the really you know high stress executives and business owners, they're like, they're working towards this thing that they know they want to get to. And then when they get close, they suddenly start to almost panic right? Mm-hmm. They're like, they're not psychologically ready for retirement because they haven't really worked on purpose or meaning outside of that. And for those who want to hear more about how that can get, how that can be solved for or how that can go wrong if you're, not, if you're not doing it right, listen to the Dave Sinclair episode where he shares his story. But the reality is, is that I think it's because we we, we frame it wrong. It's I always tell clients, it's not about the obligation to retire. It's about the, I want to give you the option of retirement because then what I'm really telling you is that you have the freedom do whatever you want after that point, as long as, of course, it's within your exactly. normal expenditure, right? And all you're, you know, what you're talking about with this is the same level of thinking. It's not that we're trying to liberate you from your job. You have a job. We're trying to we're trying to redefine it and focus it so that they have the freedom to do whatever it else is that that, that matters in their lives. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And,
2: and I I think there's very few humans that can handle like that full life of leisure you know you can do that for a little while but like years on end of just like golfing and hanging out on a beach most people just yeah. lose their minds right they need they need some deeper engagement they need intellectual stimulation they need some sense of purpose and, and meaning and all that. yeah yeah and community and all that kind of stuff
1: well there's the old joke that the number one the number one caught cause of death is retirement yeah <laughs> you know, the reality is, it's true but it's uh you know it's, it's a half a joke because like yeah you know it's because you're older and therefore you're doing something but regardless regardless of that it's, yeah, it's that loss of a sense of, not just sense of self in terms of your purpose being defined around your job. It's, we well, are gonna go straight crazy, right? There's a reason why like solitary confinement is not is considered cruel. <laughs> right so it's a lack of stimulation that basically makes you go you go cagey and the same thing applies in life if you're not doing enough to occupy your mind and your your interest you're going to you're going to suffer for it and there's even studies that show that cognitive decline is is increased due to lack of cognitive stimulation so the old saying you know my, my belief is the, the, the brain is like a muscle if you don't work it out it's going to get weak right so lots of lots of uh, nuggets there so let's just say people want to get started out we're going to give you an opportunity to tell them where they can reach you afterwards but if they're looking for some like light you know let me let me investigate this world you already mentioned a couple of resources here i mentioned process street i mentioned um was it wasn't the checklist manifesto of course you know your story immediately resonated with me in terms of the uh, four-hour work week and tim ferris is writing there although you beat him because he got down less to, to down less, <laughs> to less than four hours so well good on you you almost you almost have them so those are some ones that come to mind what other resources would you say people and check out?
2: Yeah, well, if they go to my website, it's way-finders.com forward autopilot. There's a bunch of free tools that they can download. And so one of them that I would recommend, it's pretty easy to implement, but the, the ROI is pretty big. It's called the issues list. I'm rebranding it the solutions list because it's more about solutions than issues. But as we talked about at the beginning, you know, one of the big things I see and that's common in businesses is the founders are always putting out fires, right? There's some sort of crisis, some sort of problem that's come up. Often they're recurring issues that just keep coming up time and time again. And what happens is somebody brings that to us, we're in the middle of something, and then we're expected to deal with that right then and there. So number one, it interrupts our workflow when people bring these things to us. And that could be, you know, they pop their head in their, our actual office or they send us a message on Slack or whatever. You know, we're expected to deal with it right then. The other is that when we're in the middle of our workday and we've got a million things to do, and now we're expected to deal with a problem, our instinct is to just slap a bandage on it and just quickly deal with it and get it out the door. And when you slap a bandage on it, you're not actually dealing with the, with the root, root cause of it. So this thing, you know, it's, it's just a simple, just a simple Google sheet. It can actually just be like a box in your office, you know, with a slot in it where you can drop stuff. These are issues that are not mission critical. They're not going to break the business and they don't need to be dealt with right now, but they should get dealt with at some point. So it goes into a list for my company because we were fully remote. It was a Google sheet and people would put, you know, this thing is happening. They'd put a little bit more detail about what it is. And then we had a time, we had an hour set aside each week for the core team to meet up and we would look at these issues and we would dive into them and we would get at the root cause. So we would ask why, then we would ask why again, we would ask why again, why is this happening until we're getting at the real meat of what is actually happening that's creating this problem. And if you don't actually set aside the time to do that, you're probably not going to get to that level of depth. Then when we actually discover the root cause, we, we come up with a plan. This is how we're going to solve it. And then we hold somebody accountable and say, okay, you're in charge of making sure this gets done. You don't have to do the work you can delegate it but you're accountable and then at our next meeting they're going to report on that and so that that is hugely impactful because if you can set aside you know half an hour to deal with a particular issue get at the root cause and then come up with a plan well that issue might that might have come up 10 times over the last two weeks and each time it costs you time and stress and energy whatever so over time by the time i sold that company we had over 100 issues in the solved section of Mm. our issues list. And these were things that just kept coming up time and time again and stressing us out and stressing my staff out and whatever. And then there was quite a number of weeks where there was just nothing, nothing coming up because the company was just running so smoothly. And uh, so that's, if people take away nothing from that, that's just one small thing you can implement today that's going to be, and you can download that. You can create your own version. You can put a box, you know, if you're still
1: meeting physically somewhere. And I've been Um, doing that while we've been, while you've been talking, so um, (laughs) one more download. Yeah. And before we, you know, it's interesting while you were talking about that, it brought up kind of my thinking around some of the conversations I've had with either coworkers or people or, or, or people in general about this sort of stuff. And I find that people almost fall into two camps, right? There's the, when it comes to the putting out fires, there's the perfectionist camp and then there's the denial camp, right? It's the, I shouldn't say denial, more so the just it only takes me five minutes, so I'm going to keep doing a camp, right? Or whatever it is. So I think what you're defining more so is the, you know, these things keep on coming up and no one puts a process in place. You know, that's a failure, right? If it keeps on coming up, then either you need to solve for something's broken in the process, or if it's not broken in the process and it's just exceptions are going to happen, then you have to basically build that playbook for how to deal with it. I find the other side of the coin, and I've seen this with people I know, uh, is is the perfectionist issue, right? It's, we did this thing for 1,000 Clients like a thousand emails went out, and we had one complain to us. And it's like, Oh my God, we need to do something. This person complained. And I remember specifically having conversations with people about this. It's like, Okay, so we have complaints about this process. That's fine. How many complaints have you garnered? Well, you know, this person and this person. Okay, how many people did we actually deal with in this instance? And that number usually has at least three numbers in it, three digits in it. It's like, Okay. It's called acceptable failure rate. You're never going to make everybody 100% happy. And even in total quality management, which is the benchmark study, you know, kind of the gold standard for, or the process for uh, manufacturing, we talked about Six Sigma. When you talked about Six Sigma manufacturing. Six Sigma manufacturing is all about trying to get the defect rate down to like something like 30 per thousand or something like that, or sort of a smaller number than that. The point is, is that even in the most highly automated, large scale companies when it comes to manufacturing, they accept that there's a failure rate. and I think we as entrepreneurs, especially perfectionist mentality entrepreneurs, don't give ourselves enough basically freedom or leeway as to say, okay, that's fine. And I think, if anything, in a perfect world, what we're talking about in terms of putting out fires is those should be the only ones you ever have to put out, right? It's the, we've taken care of all the routine stuff, and now we had this one thing we haven't done before, and we had a failure rate of one and we're not it's not going to happen again so let's just put out that fire and not, not build a system for where to reinvent the entire wheel so that's my long diatribe way of saying to people don't be perfectionists except except the failure will happen and just
2: adapt exactly and and that came through in our in our process because people would post something in the issues list and then when that came up during our meeting i would ask them well you know how many people is this affected and, and so we would try to do a little bit of triage and be like, "What do we need to actually deal with, and what is you know a one-off thing?" And I always wanted to prioritize what are the things that are you know happening, recurring frequently, that are affecting a lot of people. That's where we put our time and energy, but Somebody, one person in my company might feel really passionately because this affected, you know, one or two people, but if it's affecting nobody else, sorry, we're not going to deal with your issue right now.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's either, you know, it's basically like Xeno's paradox, you know, if you get half the distance to the wall every time, sooner or later, you're never, you're never going to get to the wall. Like, you're never going to get the perfect company without issue. But frankly, you want to take the step that gets, the bigger step that gets you closer as opposed to the tiny step that gets you not, not half the distance. So anyway, so Mike, where can people find you
2: again? Yeah, most, uh, mostly I'm at, I have a personal website, but I'm not very active on it. And mostly through my company and it's Wayfinders. And again, it's way-finders.com. I do a lot of writing on the blog there. There's a bunch of, I write about all this stuff on the blog. So you can get a lot of, If you want to go down this rabbit hole of optimizing your company and aligning it and all that kind of stuff? You can find that on the blog. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day.
1: That was my conversation with Mike Brissick about automating your practice. I hope you enjoyed that. And I sincerely hope that you were taking it to heart because I'm sure every entrepreneur listening to this podcast can relate to a lot of the issues we talked about. And yes, there is a better way. Just Whereas I default to technology often, it doesn't have to be. It always starts with just figuring out what's wrong and writing it down. Whether you automate that or not, that's a different process, but just having it written down and reducing cognitive burden and creating processes are just force multipliers within your business. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcast. And until next time, take care.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.